And maybe that's what ethics is, almost an inherent sensitivity that I may be wrong. I always think of it as learning analytics about learners versus learning analytics for learners. Welcome to Solar Spotlight, the podcast from the Society for Learning Analytics Research, Solar. In this podcast series, we have conversations with guest speakers to engage the wider community with leading research, practice, and key issues in learning analytics. I'm Shibani Antonet from the University of Technology, Sydney, the host for the show. In today's show, we'll be discussing the topic which lies in the crux of all learning analytics applications, privacy and ethics. I have two special guests, Paul Prinsloo, research professor from the University of South Africa, and Kirsty Keto, associate professor from the University of Technology, Sydney. Can you tell us a bit about yourselves and your work in learning analytics? Kirsty. Uh, yeah, um, so I trained as a theoretical physicist and then spent a number of years working in an information retrieval and cognitive science group before I sort of started getting more and more interested in social psychology and other like modeling people kind of problems. And then I ended up in the field of learning analytics. <laughs> so I do a lot of work around trying to help learners to understand their own learning processes. So I think in terms of learner-centered learning analytics, where we try to give information back to people to help them draw insights about what they're doing. So for example, I've um, done a lot of work around learning analytics beyond the LMS because most people are learning not just in defined controllable learning environments, they're doing a lot of their learning in social networks and personal learning networks that they develop. And that was sort of one of my driving first projects that I've sort of kept working on over many years. (laughs) What about you, Paul? Interestingly, I ended up in learning analytics by accident as Sharon Slate, for whom I have a huge respect, she was invited to write a paper in 2013, I think end of 2012, uh, on the ethics in learning analytics. And I said, oh, that, that sounds like a good idea. And at that stage, uh, there was not much formal. I mean, George Siemens and Dragan and the others have noted the ethical issues, but there was no, no framework or no coherent initial thinking about what are the ethical issues. So since 2013, I've, I've worked with Sharon and mapping the terrain. Learning analytics is still an emerging field in the global self. And I think that that is very important for my own understanding of, of the field with South Africa's history of apartheid and colonialism, where data and the use of data formed the basis for discrimination. I think maybe what I do bring to the landscape is a sensitivity to how the categorization of individuals and the data we collect are used for numerous purposes and often are used as basis for uh, awkward decisions that impact on their lives. It's really great to see the different areas you're coming from and really excited to have you both. So I was thinking we should unpack the terms a little bit before we dive into the topic for today. So can you tell us what privacy is and what ethics is in the context of learning analytics? Why are they important? I'm not going to go into the theoretical definitions of privacy and ethics. I, I, I thought seeing that this is a conversation. Last night, I thought it's, it's almost like when a student enters higher education, it's like he or she enters your house as a guest. And by entering the house, by registering for the course, he or she accepts that he will or she will be visible in the house. You will take note of which rooms they go to. 
that's the inherent higher education as a mandate to collect data and to see where you are in the house. But I think there's a difference between noticing where you are in the house and sometimes say, where are you? What are you doing? So that's one thing. And it's another thing just to burst into your room without knocking. That's maybe for me at this stage, a way into the discourse. While I'm in your house, I would like you to just respect my privacy. If you come into my room, please knock. <laughs> if you make judgments about what I'm doing, just confirm with me. So I think that's the issue. And between privacy and ethics is to prevent harm from me and help me to live in the house as comfortably as, as, as I can. Paul, can I ask you a question about that? One of the things I find really interesting is um, I consider ethics very important in learning analytics. And I, I also consider privacy incredibly important. But do we consider them the only important aspects of this field? So things like autonomy or, you know, the freedom for learners to make decisions about their data is not necessarily about privacy. It, it's a bigger area. Where do you stand on that? Because I see a lot of discussion in privacy and ethics in the context of learning analytics sort of stops there and doesn't move into those bigger issues. Oh, no, I completely agree. I, I love that. And I think that seems to, to link with many of the discussions is about that higher education has a right to use data. Mm, and yeah. students have a right to privacy. And I think we, they're not the only stakeholders and that's not the only two conditions. So I totally agree with you, Kasi, that there's, there's more. My personal opinion is that while a lot of the ethical approaches can be protected by legal and regulatory frameworks and by terms and conditions and by consent and contract, a lot can be covered. Mm. I do think a lot of caring and the ethics of care goes beyond legal frameworks mm. yeah. and yeah. beyond the rules and beyond the terms and conditions. I think for me was always important to realize or to make note that the student and the institution are in an asymmetrical power relationship and that and it plays out differently. That, do you agree? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think that's where a lot of the sort of discrepancies come is from that asymmetry in terms of institutions. And it's not just educational institutions, it's many providers mm. of technology have that ability to just go, well, yeah, I've got your data. You, you get no say over it. You, you don't get it back. You don't get to do anything with it yourself. And if you want to change platform to a new platform, forget about it. And that, that's extremely concerning to me because it, it's not just about the power asymmetry. It's also about competence or the, the data literacy in understanding what's valuable in that data because a lot of our population, not just students, don't actually understand the danger of, for example, a profile and how it might be applied against them in the future. And I think the, the privacy and ethics are sort of in the two narratives. When, when I engage with my students' engagement data and when they log in and how many times they participate, I have a particular understanding of what is happening but they may have another, a different understanding. And I think those two understandings must meet somewhere to say, this is what I understand is happening in your learning. Am I correct? Yeah. It's like that distinction. I, I always think of it as learning analytics about learners versus learning analytics for learners. Mm. And, and if learning analytics was to be for learners, then the learner would have to be 
explicitly involved in the mm. interpretation and the sense making with that yeah. data. And there's room for both of those types of analytics, but then we need to be very honest about those power asymmetries and what might mm. happen as a result. I think you raised a really important point here, Kirsty, that it's not just about privacy, it encompasses much more. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about different examples in this context? Why don't you tell us about the dystopian examples of what could go wrong? What happens if these ethical issues are not considered? Maybe I, I don't have a dystopian uh, scenario except to a concept that I discovered, I think last year was zombie categories, where mm. when we cl classify students according to gender, for example, male or female or married or divorced, what do we mean? What are the embedded values or meanings in being married on your data set? I can be happily married. I can be married with an abusive partner. I can be the abusive partner. It's not to say that we should stop using categories, but when you put me in a category of married or gay or, or single or employed, there's so much in that category that may be right. contrary to your understanding. So, so maybe that's dystopian if you say people like you or students like you. I almost have a visceral reaction to saying, I'm not, I don't fit in that category. Yeah, I think the way you define a category might be very different in how someone interprets how the category is defined. Mm -hmm. And I think we need categories, like as, as humans, we, we think in categories and that's the danger of it. Like, so we, we slip into categorization all too easily because the psychology of it is so sort of necessary just in terms of how we think about things. But then those categories can be reflected in the data in very different ways. So, for example, um, the ImageNet Roulette tool that was released last year, this was a tool which took the ImageNet sort of data collection and basically let people take a photo of themselves and then see yeah. how that photo was classified according to ImageNet. Mm -hmm. And it made very starkly visible how inappropriate a lot of the categories mm -hmm. were, especially when they were applied to women or minorities mm -hmm. or you know, yep. people who weren't basically white men. This was a really nice example of opening up a bit of a black box and showing mm -hmm. people just how dangerous those categories can be if we're not constantly inspecting them and challenging them and questioning them and getting rid of the zombie ones because there were some classic zombies in there. Um, <laughs> I, I was thinking in terms of dystopian things that come off of that because actually a lot of the categories that Paul is um, talking about they get used in building things like profiles and recommendation mm -hmm. systems. And so these are things that we need to be very careful about. A lot of the people building learning analytics tools or just artificial intelligence generally, if they're not aware of some of these issues around training set bias or the kinds of things that might be missing from a data set or the inappropriate categories that are in that data set, then they can propagate those problems through into their tools. Mm -hmm it's very easy for something that seems like a very innocuous category that's not very you know important in the grand mm -hmm. scheme of things to start really driving major decisions down the track mm -hmm. if we don't as practitioners take real care around identifying those problems and either getting rid of them or controlling for them in some way and i'd like to see a lot more work in that area 
but I think, Chrissy, I think you, you co-authored the article about the imperfectness of learning analytics. <laughs> and, and I love that work. And I think we should no. not stop doing learning analytics. Uh, but our understandings are tentative. There are some things we are more sure of. But we, we're always in the space of that the zombie may creep in or that there's bias. Chibani, maybe that's what ethics is. Almost an inherent sensitivity that I may be wrong. <laughs> I like that as a definition. I think that's a very good one. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I agree. Um, we're also in a different situation now. So is there anything else we should consider? Interesting, with, with the pandemic now, uh, most institutions are moving online and suddenly our student engagement data on the platforms look different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the South African context, there's a huge drop in engagement because they don't have access to free Wi-Fi areas anymore. The macro context has suddenly changed the whole ball game. We don't have the data that we normally have. Hmm. So this is a very interesting moment in time. Yeah, and it becomes very important that we be ethical about those models and the data sets that we're using because it would be very easy to, for example, apply a performance metric mm -hmm. that is no longer valid. Yeah. And that's not just learning analytics. That could be mm -hmm. people could be looking at student evaluations of teaching and they could be just mm -hmm. applying mm -hmm. that same line that they ruled last year. And now you have a very different context with people facing very different challenges. Those key ethical points where you need to be very aware of those changes and you need to know and understand the system well enough to know when you do need to revisit that versus when the system is largely the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you think there are added risks in this situation because there are many yes. vendor-based products and we don't know what data they're collecting we don't know and it's a mad rush everyone's desperate right so mm -hmm. everyone's yeah. moving very fast so facial recognition is a great example there because you've gone from people being quite concerned about facial recognition and you know people were mm -hmm. challenging it and there was time to challenge it and you know there was quite a movement building up to oh no but we need to run exams from home how are we going to do it i know <laughs> facial recognition <laughs> it will solve all problems and so things that were absolutely not allowed three months ago Mm. are now being very seriously considered by schools and institutions and stuff just to solve a very immediate problem. But the danger with that is, you know, once that very immediate problem has gone, mm. um, things don't necessarily revert back to the way they were before. So a great way to sneak very evil tech into a system mm. is via an emergency, right? Yes. Yeah. So what ethical principles or frameworks can we use to overcome this? How do we prevent this from happening? And the more important question is, how do we actually enforce them and make sure that people are doing the right thing? That second part, can we first deal with the first one? That gives me <laughs> hope the second one is a bit more despairing. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's I, I bring it down and go one by one then. <laughs> I, I was wondering whether our understanding of ethics in student data is not based on a certain understanding of student identity in the learning environment. And I think for me, that's a basis to, to grapple with that, that a student is in a particular course at a particular moment in time, most probably different from in another course at a different moment in time. So to have an understanding of student identity as a transient construct, to base our assumptions and our 
concerns and our interventions on student identity as a fixed and a stable construct for me that is very important to question and to destabilize if if i can just say we, we should respect students do make choices they're not the passive recipients of services they do make choices but it's constrained choices it's choices in response to other choices and often choices that they have no control over the other ethical part is that is often left out of the equation in discourses about ethics and student data is we have an ethical duty to use data. Mm. The fact that we raise concerns about ethics doesn't mean we anti-data or anti-using student data. We have a moral obligation to use data in order to check ourselves, but also to create effective learning environments. So except to go for bullets, uh, Shabani, this is just mm -hmm. some thoughts about what are the ethical principles. Uh, Christy, what are your feelings? Yeah, I, I think on that last point about the ethical um, responsibility to use data is really important. And I mean, if you think about education generally, assessment could be seen as a form of data gathering. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and so what's happened is we've gone from some form of assessment that were like not very conducive to learning at all, like exams. And we're, you know, potentially with fields like learning analytics and data, we have a potential to move towards much more nuanced and sophisticated measures that are much more sort of adapted to an individual and can really help them. But there's a risk in that that we turn that person into a really quite shallow stereotype of who they are. Um, and so we need to be as practitioners and as builders of learning analytics systems aware of those risks. Yeah, I was really happy when you brought up ethically responsible to also use data because a lot of times people see ethics as a barrier to doing interesting mm -hmm. things, but that shouldn't be the case. Uh, it, should it should help us do better things. Like, yes. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But back to you, Shabani, the other thing is, I do think it's good for institutions to have a policy and to have a framework or to have principles like the Open University, who was the first institution actually to develop a policy for the ethical principles in working with learning analytics or the University of Edinburgh or whatever university. It's, I think it's a good starting point to, to have a conversation. The difficult part is now that we have the framework or we have all these protective measures, who will oversee that? Who checks on me? What, what checks and balances are there in the system? Yeah, that's definitely the hard question. What do you think, Kirsty? My preferred position is one of education for the field rather than one of frameworks because um, frameworks I find I always run into edge cases or places where a framework doesn't help me out when I'm trying mm -hmm. to grapple with these issues because they're quite complex issues. And if I'm not sort of trained in considering ethical positions and the kinds of dystopian futures that might emerge from bad decisions, I could very easily go, oh, well, I can do what I like. <laughs> but if I have a responsibility to try myself and be ethical, then I have more tools at my disposal to try and work out what would be the right thing to do in this scenario. I have a bit of a position of we need to somehow generate more personal responsibility. Yeah, I agree, because it's also context dependent. There's lots of um, competing tensions. So if I want to help a learner to learn over a lifetime of learning across multiple systems, 
then if one schooling system or one university sector decides that it's going to delete data after five years, then I can't enable that learner to get that data, even though that data describes them. That kind of tension between two equally, in my view, beneficial sort of things that we might want to do. And one of the issues that we haven't solved, I think, in the learning analytics debate is, and we're trying, is to say, if this is research, if learning analytics is research with a capital R, then it should be treated like all other research. And then we back into the ethical review boards and those processes and 10 forms with 20 signatures. If it's research with a small R, if it's a scholarship, if it's more active and more just in time almost, what are the checks and balances Mm -hmm. then to oversee and to safeguard that I'm not unethical or that the the harm is taken care of? So I think we haven't solved that. I don't know whether you agree, Kirsty. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So, and I think the educational sciences or across so many different fields to do with scholarly teaching and learning, there's been a lot of sloppiness because people were thinking, well, I'm, I'm doing institutional betterment which meant Mm. that they could get Mm. away without that kind of ethical review board oversight that anyone else doing human research would have to do. And it it has led to some fairly scary things over the time. A lot of that is being cleaned up academically. Like I think I'm not Mm. so worried about large educational institutions these days because people are really working through those issues. And like you're saying, you've got institutions putting out policies and saying, this is what we stand for and we'll update it every, you know, three years and we'll tell you when you went. So, you know, you know, as a student, what is being done with your data in those very clear cases. The thing I'm much more worried about now is things like schools and the way EdTech is Mm -hmm. approaching schools and people who have um, much less sort of data literacy, much less um, technical support generally. Mm -hmm. Those companies are much less bounded by sort of ethical review boards and things. So it seems like there are different levels of stakeholders in there. What is the role of such stakeholders in how we use these ethically? So that's my next question. (laughs) Who is responsible or who should take care of these? That's a good question. It's a hard one. (laughs) I think it it, it goes back to the... Do we see learning analytics as operational research? Do we see it as scholarship of teaching and learning? Do we see it as research with a capital R? So there's something in there. I totally agree with Chris in the sense of, for me, the student is a key stakeholder. And I would almost say it's not learning analytics for students or for learners, but with learners. Because in our dashboards, we flatten the narrative. We, we flatten the learning journey to a number of data points. And for me, the student is sort of a key stakeholder. But then the institution, the, everyone that works with data to have the sensitivity. I think the questions do need to be linked to an identifiable stakeholder. And back to that power imbalance, part of the problem often is that the people who are making decisions about the data and the tools aren't actually affected by them. Mm. And so, you know, and this happens to academics as well. So you think about performance metrics at universities and how they get determined. The people who those metrics affect very rarely are involved at the table. I guess one of my favourite principles, you're asking for principles, Shabani, would be that the data should somehow go back to the person who generated it. And it doesn't yes. necessarily all has to go back. Like, you know, it, it, 
that doesn't mean it can't go to other stakeholders as well. But that the person that that data is describing needs to have a right of review of that data. And that's something the GDPR did very nicely, I think. So right. that right to review and rectification and things like that, these are very important principles that we really need to be thinking about a lot more as practitioners. Because a lot of the things people are trying to do in implementing things like privacy mean that it's not possible for the learner to see the data because you're actually deliberately getting rid of any identifiable information in a data trace that describes yeah. an individual. So it goes back to those tensions again, like how we navigate them is something we have to be very careful about. Yeah, we probably have to go back to the practical standpoint once again mm. to discuss these tensions because there are principles, frameworks, but they might also limit what we can do in a practical standpoint. Yeah, I, I think more conversations like this and more places where people who are building and people who are practitioners and the people who are doing the analysis are talking to people who are legally trained and ethically trained. Mm. And so they're actually communicating rather than talking past each other, which can quite often happen in fields like this. Mm. Learning analytics is a field with people coming from lots of different places. It's very easy for it to form into sub kind of clades, really, where you yeah. have, mm. you know, the machine learning people go to the machine learning presentations at lack and the ethics people <laughs> go to the ethics presentations at lack and never the two need to meet at all if we're not very careful about how we facilitate that. So I, I think finding these middle spaces where people genuinely engage in a thoughtful conversation and a sort of a challenging of accepted principles which moves somewhere else can be really beneficial. So we're proposing that sort of a database of edge cases gets built up by the community where practitioners who have ethical challenges can record them or report them and people who come from legal or ethical or social well critical data studies in any fields like that can look at the issues that people are actually grappling with and think about whether or not they are being addressed at the moment if i can add there and i, and yeah, I love that what I often experience is that, and I call them tribes in the learning analytics community, <laughs> there's different tribes uh, and we all protect our turf. But I do think the tribes have to get to a tribal council like this. <laughs> and I do think, and most probably that is where, where I am, is to say, let's be epistemically humble and let go of our certainties and just say, can I listen to you? Yeah, tell me why you do this what are your basic so what are your default assumptions about this data set mm. and yeah. let's start there mm. as the field's consolidated a bit and we've got people who've been in the field for a bit longer mm. like it, it is almost our like sort of duty to make sure that those kinds of communication channels are really building up and really extending mm. in interesting ways and especially as new people come into the field to make sure they don't make the same mistakes that we made <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a really nice segue to our wrap-up question. Can you give us some handy tips for ethical learning analytics? We need to have conversations about data. We need to see what data do we have and to have multi-stakeholders give input. What does that data mean before we start to look for more data and go on this data safari? Uh, what, what are the implications? What are the potential for harm? What are the potential for intervention and for enriching the student? Other handy tips. <laughs> the, the notion of epistemic humility, like don't pick a straw man and then attack it. Pick the best version of learning analytics uh, you can find and then 
try to enhance it would be the thing I'd like to most see coming out of the field. Maybe, <laughs> maybe from, from my side, and it's not a tip, it's almost a warning uh, in the sense of we cannot unknow knowing. That's true. <laughs> and with knowing comes a particular responsibility. You cannot unknow knowing, so be careful what you want to know. Yeah, so would it be a good thing for tool developers to think about what data they're collecting and if they really need it? And if they don't read it, just don't get whatever data they can collect. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a tendency for people to do a free-for-all grab and then mm. start formulating mm. research questions and thinking about what they want to know. And I think that's a very dangerous way to do learning analytics because for starters, you collect very silly data that's never going to answer any questions that you might find relevant. And, and I think when people express concerns about learning analytics, like Chrissy says, there's, there's a lot of straw men and women to attack, but find the best example, accept that people in the field, especially people that have established themselves, really, really care about learning sometimes awkwardly, sometimes imperfectly, but we, we really, really, really care. And from that basis, then start to have the conversation. Great. Thanks, Paul and Kirsty, for sharing your experiences and insights with us. I'm sure anyone who works with student data will find this immensely helpful and hopefully Thank triggered you. some new thoughts and perspectives on the topic amongst our listeners. Great to have you both on the show. Thanks Sorry for, for being such rebel. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> thank you and thank at you. the end of the podcast we invite a special guest to play a fun game called two truths and a lie paul and kirsty will share with us three statements about themselves two are true and one of them is a lie that we should find out in our last podcast we played this game with Bart Rangers and linda corin here are their answers so my first statement was, I know how to program in R. My second statement was, I love playing uh, games on the PS4. And thirdly, I love cycling and I'm the world champion. And the uh, actual lies, I don't know how to program in R because I just don't have the time to learn R, which is really annoying. I indeed love gaming and my wife is still like, why are you still playing computer games? And I'm a proud uh, world champion because um, 11 years ago, I got a transplant and now I'm the world champion, hooray. Okay, so my statements were, I have been involved in over 100 amateur theatre productions. I once gave up my seat for Michael Keaton on a flight from New York to Los Angeles. And I have attended every Australasian Learning Analytics Summer Institute ever held. Well, that last one is true. I've been to them all. Uh, I have done a lot of theatre productions, but it was actually my sister who gave up her seat to, for, to Michael Keaton on a flight from New York to Los Angeles. Now, let's invite today's guests, Paul Tinsley and Kirsty Keto, to give us their three statements for Two Truths and a Life. Okay. I have never had a Facebook account. I am spending my period in isolation attempting to master the handstand. I eat a banana smoothie every morning when I am working from home. Oh, my goodness. That <laughs> is so much fun. <laughs> Okay. I don't know what the truth is in one of them, but let's see. Some people know, like it's fairly easy for some people with one of them, but <laughs> Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's hear yours, Paul. I have a degree in art history and I am an artist and maybe that's where I should have stayed. Um, <laughs> I taught at the University of Maryland University College in a master's degree program. 
and I have a degree in software engineering and I'm a very competent coder. I think I know which one it is. But... <laughs> it's fairly <laughs> obvious if you know me. <laughs> well, let's wait for our audience to take their guesses. Tune in to the next episode to find the answers. This was fun. Thanks, Shabani. Thanks, Kasi. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Solar Spotlight, conversations on learning analytics. If you liked what you heard, why not subscribe to our podcast? You can find all available episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Please join us for our next episode in July 2020. In the meantime, look out for the upcoming webinar from Solar. Learning Analytics and Solar are featured in the Influential Experiencing Data podcast, in which Professor Simon Buckinghamsham discusses how human-centered design can shape data science and analytics in education. You can search for the Experiencing Data podcast to find the episode. Many of our listeners will recall Professor David Williamson Schaeffer's LAC 18 keynote introducing the idea of quantitative ethnography, QE. Some of the learning analytics community are now engaged with the emerging QE community. Check out QESOC.org for updates and information on quantitative ethnography. My name is Shibani Antlet and I've been talking to Paul Prinsloo and Kirsty Keter today on the topic of privacy and ethics in learning analytics. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please tweet us at Solar Research using the hashtag Solar Spotlight. Until next time. <laughs>